Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Half-Ashed. My name is Craig Schneider. That gentleman, 1,850 miles southeast of me, is none other than the very tan, very sweaty Mr. Kip Fisher. <laughs> Kipperino, how the heck are you? I am fantabulous, even uh, if I am a bit sweaty. <laughs> oh, that was a very good Mel Brooks that you just did there. I don't know if you even intended I see your Schwartz is longer than mine. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to add that to your list of unknown talents. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, 17th day of May, episode 194. Where the heck is the time gone? 193 and a half episodes before this? Damn. I don't know. Considering we only do like one a year, I don't know how we're still alive. I'm 76. How old are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm older than you. Mm. Look and at this. I Look at what. I Look know. back at early episodes. I didn't have any of this hardly. I know. I, I My first thought today when I saw you on the video was, oh, he's dyed his beard. No. It, there's there's just little bits of white in there. But this up here, man, this is going quick. Your beard looks like you rather hastily tried to drink a milk uh, glass of milk. That's all that looks like. <laughs> We're just selective whiskers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Santa Claus trying to rush through the cookies and milk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a... Ooh, yow. My kids would have even shaken their heads at that joke. Ay, ay, ay. Well, what's been new and exciting? What's, what's May like in the Dominican Republic, Mr. Fisher? Well, this May happens to be a bit toasty. I like, when I say a bit toasty, I mean gruelingly, brutally muggy. But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, Mm -hmm. when all else fails, if it gets hot and muggy, just have yourself a glass of rum. Rum never tastes so good as when you drink it in a hot climate. I don't know why. Well, I, I have some water here, and you see it's it's Alaska water. So <laughs> that should keep me cold. Uh, that's awesome. That water has never <laughs> been closer to Alaska than you. No, not at all. I mean, the entire label's in Spanish except for the word Alaska, so pretty sure it didn't come here from Alaska. <sighs> no, <laughs> it appears to have come from Santo Domingo. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, besides, uh, besides hot and toasty, how has the uh, how has the Dominican life been treating you? Had any lovely run-ins with any of your cigar buddies down there, or kicked back with a bowl of tobacco with any of them recently? Uh, not outside the norm. I mean, my friend Nick and I have a bowl or a cigar pretty regularly, and my buddy William. <laughs> <laughs> who takes us on safari sometimes, which is a very long story, not suited for sitting here on the show and telling it, but I love the adventures we have with that man. We never, ever know where we're going to end up, but we can just about be guaranteed we're going to eat something we don't want to eat and never plan on. <laughs> uh, does he know where you're going on those trips or no? Sometimes, sometimes we just end up somewhere and we were always in the absolute middle of nowhere in the boondocks in the mountains and 
William has this knack for just just stopping somewhere and striking up a conversation with somebody, and we end up in their house eating tostones and drinking coffee. <laughs> man, oh man! You know that brings up a good question. What what is the coffee situation like at local homes? Does everybody grow their own, or do a lot of people? When you're in the mountains like that, I mean. Uh, yeah, in the in the mountains where we well, not just anywhere in the mountains, but in the areas where we commonly end up, there's a lot of coffee grown. Um, very little commercially in this particular area, but people will have, you know, trees on their property around the house, and they they make enough for their their own family, and they use it to trade. You know, if, you know, Jose grows pigs and they'll trade for pork or whatever they, they just barter within the community with it a lot too um but overall I, I don't know if did you see the post i had put up on the forum earlier this week about coffee no the, actually the coffee rust which is a disease came through this country within the past few years and it's just decimated the coffee tree population Mm. So pr production is a small fraction of what it was. And, and what triggered this in my mind was I had read an article that the Dominican Republic, even though it is a coffee growing nation, now imports 75 percent of its need of its demand because there's not enough growing. And the government was pretty late to step in and try to, you know, like in Florida, there was an orange light um, Thing. I can't even remember what it was called. There, there was an orange tree disease that came through 15 years ago or so, and it was to, just wreaking havoc. And they, the government, the state government, instantly came in and they they set up um, kind of like these sally port gates. If you drive into a an orange grove, they have these little spray setups. They basically bleach your car down, coming wow. and going, so you don't transport it to another grove or whatever. And none of that happened here, and it just went through and just wiped out a huge portion of the trees. But uh, our friend Amato in the mountains has apparently decided he's single-handedly going to revive the industry. He is planting hundreds, if not thousands, of trees all over the – he's like the Johnny Appleseed of coffee plants in the Dominican Republic now. Uh, he has a big chunk of land and is just – dropping little trees in them but it takes several years before they're actually going to be making serious amounts of coffee but oh yeah i would imagine hmm. is that I, I a, have a uh, coffee tree i know you do i've seen your your the buds on your coffee tree you put those on the forum yeah it is thriving now it, it bloomed a few weeks ago but i'm not sure that anything got fertilized i haven't seen berries start popping up but i understand it can take two or three months before the berries actually kind of start, start real growth. So we'll see. But Holy cow. It did really? bloom for the first time. It's three years old. This was the first time it had bloomed. Well, I am on peach tree number three at my house, hoping to uh -huh. grow peaches with uh, <clears throat> uh, frost tolerant uh, varietals up here. And man, oh man, I, uh, I have had nothing but trouble getting those things to uh, to bear flowers and then ultimately bear fruit. Still had none. Hmm. Uh, they just they do not like the cold weather. We got a real late snow 
uh, oh, it might have even been the first weekend in May here. We got four inches of slushy snow. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's just incredibly late for us. Um, and I'm pretty sure it killed this peach tree. Third damn peach tree died again. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's not a funny situation, but your mannerisms were pretty funny. The video. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a silly thing. and I'm not sure why I'm going to say it, but I don't know how closely you followed the historical progress of orange groves throughout Florida. Mm. But Top of my list. Uh, if you look 50, 75 years ago or even more, the orange groves were throughout much of Florida as mankind had come in and just planted them everywhere. And every time a really significant freeze makes it far enough south to kill off the groves, uh-huh. they don't replant in the same area. They move further south. So the groves have <laughs> marched further south. And there's a lot of abandoned groves now in central Florida. But when we were in central Florida, we had an orange tree. That was a hamlin, which is a type of orange that is ugly as sin. You won't ever see on a shelf. They make, they're fantastic for juice. They're just juice oranges. They're not pretty. They're not appealing on a shelf. They just use them for juice. And, and it, it did really well. Well, up until it died. But anyway, um, I found another one. And what made me think of it was your peach tree. that it was a Satsuma tangerine. I think tangerine. And <laughs> I bought this thing because the guy at the nursery was like, this this is it, man. You can't kill this thing. It's good to, to like 15 degrees overnight. It, you can't. It's, it's the most cold tolerant citrus tree we have available. You, you'll, you'll love it. I drove that thing home and it just immediately died and whatever the... the <laughs> the root stock was grew up and it was still citrus of some kind. It never made any kind of fruit, but it was a citrus tree, but the, you know, they just, what do you call it? It's not graft. splice graft. Yeah. Graft something onto a root stock and that died. Whatever the root was grew, never made a single tangerine. Man, we, uh, I have tried everything. So first year, first time that I grew that, <laughs> You'd never know this was a cigar podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, it cares. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Everybody who still listens to us after a hundred and nothing episodes uh, 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 knows that you know knows that we talk about life almost more than we talk about cigars. But that's the way we like it. Uh, yeah. My first one of these peach trees did the best, uh, and I had nothing on it. I didn't have a, a bark guard. I didn't have. Uh, 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 wire around it to keep animals away. My kids would, you know, put baseballs on the branches and try to hit them off of it like a tee. You know, it was it was <laughs> just silly, stupid. And it lived through it, lived through it. Then we got a late frost uh, one spring and it died. But now you go up there to that third tree, it's got a bark guard. It's got about a foot and a half of like a, <laughs> a crown of leaf mulch around it. I've got two big green stakes uh, no, three big green stakes with like two layers of chicken wire around this thing. I guarantee you a mother bringing her infant home from the hospital after it's been born is not as well protected as this peach tree. <laughs> and that mofo still died. <laughs> I'm so pissed off. <laughs> He's got a laser grid with alarms around. 
Uh, actually, last year I had vibrating stakes in the ground that every forty-five seconds they would vibrate to keep away voles or mice <laughs> or anything that would come by it. I never knew such a thing existed. I feel like my life is better now. Oh man, I uh, they're solar-powered, embedded stakes, so you don't get voles or moles or any ground boring rodent of any sort which comes close to the the roots didn't now, work is this a, a genuinely proven an effective thing or is this as seen on tv kind of deal oh in my mind <laughs> <laughs> that's all i need uh you put a good infomercial in front of me in 1999 and a big star flash i'll buy anything mm-hmm Oh, actually, I don't think I've ever lied more than that in my life. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, I'm not a big consumer of but anything wait. except this. But there wait, there's more. more. There is. <laughs> ah, as I pour more rum into my glass. You know, I have to say, I, I this is a bottle of Cuban rum. Uh, actually, a friend of ours from the forum goes to Cuba somewhat regularly, and I have a... <clears throat> A good enough relationship with him where he will bring me a bottle every couple trips. And so this is a bottle, uh, Cubay, C-U-B-A-Y, Cubay. Cuban, 10-year-old, dark rum, non-flavored. I don't drink anything spiced or flavored. And it's okay. It's just a, it's a little bit harsh, not nearly as sweet, and it doesn't have a lot of woodsy flavor to it uh, like I would want if the, the rum isn't a sweet rum. And I haven't really found anything that I've enjoyed with it until today. Uh, La Croix, La Croix, however you want to pronounce it, mango <laughs> water. I think that's French for sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that water and uh, this rum is delicious. <laughs> <sighs> you know, that's actually something that is here. It, it's. I don't know how popular it is, but I see it all the time. Oh, man, I love it. I've got a soda stream where I make my own club soda. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love club soda. It is. <clears throat> uh, I almost prefer that more than I prefer just a glass of still at this point. Hmm. Uh, and weird. soda is great <laughs> with alcohol. It's okay. great. <laughs> a little whiskey and soda. It's terrific. Hmm. Mm-mm. Well, I, I remember I, we were in the UK in 2008. Every single place we asked for water, that that was the question: Do you want steel or bubbles? <laughs> uh, I uh, 2007. I was in Italy, and I almost could not find still water in the bottle in yeah. Italy. So it, uh, it's one of the reasons why I started uh, trying it. So well, how about we do something like really out of the norm and crazy, and at least say what cigars we're smoking? <laughs> uh, you know, that's probably a good idea. Why don't you go first? Yours looks like you got less to it than me. I, yeah, I have rubbed my eye and gotten something in it, but yeah, I can do that. I am. Oh, tonight is a uh, we're calling it a host's choice tonight. Because I was having some power troubles and did not want to start an actual given cigar and unbanded tonight on the chance that 
power goes out and we lose a show. So we just decided to randomly pick some, well, maybe not randomly, to pick something from our own humidors to enjoy tonight. And so I selected the 2008 Oliva Serie V Maduro, which we have talked about uh, t to no end in the early days of half Ashton actually did a, a vertical or a horizontal. <laughs> hey, diagonal review of several years of these um and so i wanted to see how these were holding up now a little more than 10 years in um yeah 10 and a half years because they typically come out in the fall or the winter and as i said this was the 2008 edition and last year last summer i got uh, an, an open box of 10 of these from from our buddy who was selling off his cigars at half price and because I was a massive, humongous fan of this line for many years, uh, every edition up until they decided to just make them in the 60 ring for the last two or three years. I didn't even buy on those. But yeah. Yeah. anyway, I wanted to see how they were doing uh, with some time on them. I smoked, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many of these from 2008 up until I ran out and I don't know, 2012 or 13, I guess. Uh, I, I went through quite a few of them. I can tell you the answer to that question is uh, too many. My, yeah. my, my summation of this blend is however many you've smoked is, I think, too many. <laughs> See, it's all about perspective. Perspective is the most valuable commodity on the planet. My perspective says not quite enough. Fair enough. You know, I, uh, I I like a lot of cigars that you don't, and you like the Namakubi and uh, the Nero. So <laughs> and a Casa Fernandez. Yeah. Oh gosh. I think I'd, I, I there's got to be sandpaper around here. I'm going to scrape my eyeballs. That <laughs> sounds more enjoyable. <laughs> so for a refresher, the 2008 was a six and a half by 52 Bellicoso. Uh, had a Connecticut Broadleaf wrapper, Nicaraguan binder and filler. And I put into the notes a couple of things. Uh, one, that uh, just today, just this afternoon, Cigar Aficionado published a story about this very line of cigars um, because historically, since 2007 or 8, uh, whatever that first year uh, was, it may, I'm not sure, one of the two. I think it was seven. Uh, Okay, so they've been putting them out annually, uh, very limited release. It began with like 35 or, or 40,000 total production, and that gradually increased over the years up to about 80,000 per year. And uh, they just, just through this story today, announced that after the trade show this summer, these will be available all the time. Um, going to be regular portfolio production and they actually are not going to limit it to one vitola uh, typically most years have one vitolas i think a couple of years had two that were offered recent in recent years but the uh the ongoing production will be coming in a double robusto which is five inches by 54 a six by 50 toro a six by 54 torpedo and what they call their double Toro, which is the 6x60. Um, pricing is a little more than they used to be, which is to be expected. It's going to be 940 to 1060, depending on the size. And then the ongoing blend, as many of you, if you remember, our 
sampling of all the different years of this, it changed uh, from year to year, particularly the specifically the wrapper changed quite a number of times from this Connecticut broadleaf to Mexican San Andres. And uh, I think it basically went back and forth between those two. But the full production, regular production, will be Mexican San Andres wrapper, uh, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan filler. And so I don't know production numbers, but I'm assuming they will be pretty much available anytime you want them. I mean, they're going to be regular items, just like everything else in the Oliva portfolio. So should definitely not be hard to find. I'm happy um, for that. I, I'm uh, I'm not a fan of the cigar, but I certainly know that you are, and it's something that uh in the past has been a bit of a letdown when you get the press release saying that it's going to be a six by 60 again this year and now you're going to be able to yeah get something a little more palatable they'll be around and we even have a shop here in santiago now that actually may carry them a honest to goodness cigar shop which is pretty cool uh, but as far is as that a new cigar shop uh, it's been open several months and it is one of a chain, uh, here in the country. I think they have seven or eight other locations, but all the other locations are in airports and high traffic resort touristy kind of areas. So the pricing is going to be more, but they will have things that you can't really find anywhere else in the country. Cool. Yeah. So that that is pretty cool, actually. It's a really nice shop. Uh, I like it a lot, but I've only been a couple of times. But very nice. Uh, it's about as nice as it gets in this town. When you have a nice shop like that, are they requiring you to smoke one of their cigars? Do they have a cutting fee? Or if you buy a cigar, can you smoke your own cigar if you're making purchases? I have no idea. I mean, I always go into a shop with the assumption that I'm going to buy one of their cigars if I'm going to smoke while I'm there. You know, that's an interesting question. Are you, are you, are you doing that because you like going into a shop and buying the new thing and then trying it? Or are you doing it because you feel a sense of obligation? I'm utilizing their resources. I should purchase one of their cigars. Or do you think there's some middle ground where, it's a pay to play, but whether you light up your cigar that you brought or the cigar that you bought there, either way, you are buying a cigar. So it doesn't really matter what you're enjoying. Well, looking back historically, when I lived stateside in particular, I, I would never go into a cigar shop and drag my own cigars with me in general. If I was going for an event or a gathering and I was trading around with other guys or something, I could see that. But if I'm just going to smoke another cigar I bought somewhere else, why would I not just smoke that at home? If I'm going to go into their store and suck up their AC and watch their TV or whatever, I would always buy a cigar from where, wherever I happen to be. And it's kind of that way here. I mean, if I just wanted cigars, I, I have a, a cargo handler that I could have them shipped here. I can order online if I wanted to, but if I'm going to go to the trouble of, drive into a cigar shop, I'm going to buy one of their cigars while I'm there if I'm going to hang out for a while. Well, I always do that, but I generally am bringing <clears throat> an assortment with me, two or three cigars, mm -hmm. and I'll buy one from there always. I buy one that I want to smoke or a cigar that I have in my 
my uh, allotment to have when I'm visiting, but I might spend four hours at a shop and the first one might be one that I bring, but I've always walked in the door and purchased the cigar. And the second one might be that cigar that I purchased or it might not, but I'm still buying, I am still buying a cigar. Sure. I think that's fair. I don't don't see an issue with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do that because I think it's fair as well. Um, I know there are a lot of people really, really touchy about it. Right. Right. To me, if I go into a place and like what you just described, if I have cigars with me and I plan on smoking some other thing for some other reason, if I have bought from them a reasonable amount, I'm not going to walk in there and buy a you know a fifty cent bundle stick. And, right, and right. If I have bought something reasonable from them, I wouldn't have any qualms about smoking some other cigar that I happen to be carrying in a travel humor or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I go to a shop every month or so with a group of guys, and the shopkeep knows that we always buy. They know that that we treat them well. We tip them when we leave. So they never have a problem with us doing that. But I'm also not the guy who stops in random stores anymore and never goes back. You know, I I always have a relationship with the retailer. So I think it's a little bit different for me because they know that I'm not just some schmuck who's uh, using them. Um, without them getting anything in return. But I, I don't know. I, I'm always interested in hearing other people's perspective with solid reasoning behind it, not just, I don't like that. It doesn't feel right. I, I, I want to know why. Sure. So, but you send or sound as if you tend to agree with me. So I'll, uh, I'll just run with that. I'm right. Yeah. And you agree. <laughs> yeah. Neither, neither. I'll wear that. Well, you are smoking that Oliva, and I am smoking something completely different, uh, other than the fact that it does come from the same country, mostly. Uh, and uh, that is a Davidoff Nicaragua in the Diadema Vitola. Um, I I think probably three or four years ago on the show, went through a bit of a kick where I waxed poetically about how great the Nicaragua blend was from Davey and uh, still agree with that. Really uh, a a great smoker's blend. Um, Davidoff are notoriously light and vegetal to a lot of uh, smokers. The the Dominican version of those or the standard version of those. Um, And the Nicaragua blend really appeals, I think, to a, a wide variety of consumers. It has enough, excuse me, of that Nicaraguan character where uh, your tatuaje, your average tatuaje, uh, illusion, uh, smoker is going to appreciate it. But it's also not just pigeonholed into being a Nicaraguan puro that tastes like every other Nicaraguan cigar. It's, It's a nice marriage of the suave, complex characteristics you find from Davidoff without having too much strength that happens to also be centered around the best of what Nicaraguan tobacco can bring to the table. So um, I this specific cigar, this 
this one stick uh, I had been going with me to Colorado for the past three summers. Um, I visit my parents out there every year, and uh, this was always in that that bag of cigars that I was going to bring with me. And I have finally decided that I wasn't going to wait around for the fourth failed attempt this summer uh, to smoke it in the mountains. And so uh, I had a little thought. Um, an old deceased, now deceased friend of mine always said that uh, he would mortgage his house for more of the original Davidoff Diademas. Well, just this week I, I got an email that they are being sold again. And in his honor, and since I have none of those 14-year-old original diademas, I thought that I'd smoke the closest thing I had. Um, this Nicaragua, celebrating the, the same Vitola name. Um, it's nutty and full of Nicaraguan zing. And it's slightly overmatching my out-of-practice palate. Um, if you have not been on the forum much recently, you might not know that I had a wicked, wicked spring cold, uh, and it has severely diminished my, not only my cigar consumption uh, rate, but also my tasting ability. Um, even food has tasted different this month. It's been uh, a little scary, actually. Uh, this cigar is one of the best things that I've consumed in, in nearly a month, and I wrote, and I'm only an inch in, but now I am easily halfway through this cigar and it is still absolutely delighting me cool yeah six and a half by 50 but if you know the diadema uh vitola it comes to a <clears throat> essentially a torpedo type head and has a bit of a, a nipple at the foot similar to like a uh a hemingway classic vitola but with a little bit more of a, a tapered head yeah you know, I remember the very first one of those I got and smoked. When it first came out, um, they gave them out as part of the event at one of the tweet-ups in Chattanooga, I think 2012 or 13 maybe, around that time. Huh. And it came in a metal tube, but not. But it was like a machined aircraft aluminum. It looked like a mag-like flashlight tube. The, the body of a flashlight. And I was like, really? This is a kind of overkill. Who carries a single cigar humidor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? I think my actual quote was that I guess you can't polish a turd, but you can roll it in glitter. <laughs> <laughs> all this extra, all this. Uh, but anyway, the cigar was good, but it did not stand my world on its head the way that you appreciate them, I guess. Well, I, I don't smoke them very often. Um, one, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a, uh, uh, a huge, uh, investor in the Davidoff boxes of cigars. I, I don't, I don't think I have a single Davidoff box of cigars actually. Um, so I don't smoke them often because I don't have a steady supply of them. But it's one of those treat cigars, maybe. You know, you go to a shop. A perfect example. I'll go to a shop, and this would be the sort of thing that I would buy. I'm going to spend a little bit of money. It's not something I'm going to uh, to ever order online or trade with a buddy or pick up a fiver of. Uh, but I'll go, and I'll get them in different Vitolas. And the Davidoff 
brand uh, had, gosh, I'm going to say three or four different countries uh, that they exhibited different blends for the uh, uh, Brazilian line and the Nicaraguan line. And then there was one more which had like a red band to it. I, I don't remember where those were from. Um, but I had kind of dabbled in all of those and thought that the Nicaragua was my favorite. But um, <clears throat> it's just a it's a really well-balanced blend. It definitely is a Nicaraguan cigar, but it almost comes across as tobacco that perhaps has been aged for a more significant period. Um, it's not a, uh, a, the cigar itself doesn't taste aged. It just doesn't have an edge or a bite that you might find in a typical, my father release. Right. Uh, this is not a libiju far from it, but it's probably more akin to a Pepine blue label where yeah. it's, it's, easier to consume uh there's a lot of nicaraguan character um but it's not gonna toss your cookies after an inch and a half if you're not a seasoned smoker yeah i think that's actually a very apt description oh well, thank you i mean i don't want you to get all egotistical or nothing but <laughs> you I, I can't say you're right twice in a row come on man no no you can't <laughs> Well, this is uh, it's a pretty darn good cigar. Six and a half by 50 uh, overall maximum dimensions. Uh, smokes a little bit shorter than that just because of the tapers. Um, but as you would expect with a $20 cigar or $20 product from Davidoff, the construction is flawless. It has a great feel in your hand. Um, and it's it's a freaking beautiful stick. I mean, this wrapper looks like if you were to melt chocolate and then lay it out and pour it out in this thin, even layer, it is so consistent and so smooth. There is no tooth on this thing. You can see some veins, but it's it's shocking how soft the binder leaf has to be for this wrapper to lie on it so smoothly. Yeah, I gotta hand that to Davidoff. I'm not I'm not a Davidoff fanboy. Never got into them. But and actually have been critical of some of their pricing models in the past, but it, they're hard to beat with as far as consistency goes and the quality of both, both the materials and the workmanship. They just don't put out a lot of bad cigars. No, I I, I do agree with that. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty good example. I'm sure the profit margin on a your average Davidoff is uh, higher <clears throat> in both percentage and net dollars and cents than you would compare to uh, a, a similar manufacturer um, that is 40% less expensive. But I don't think, I, I'm really convinced you're not buying a better blend. You're buying premium consistency consistency in flavor a little bit more than others consistency in construction and consistency in appearance and that matters to some people doesn't quite matter to me but you know i i've bought hundred dollar cigars before not because they were ten dollar or ten times better than a ten dollar cigar they were just a different experience this sure. is the only cigar out there that has the davidoff nicaragua blend yeah. i like the nicaragua blend when i want this 
it's something that I acquire. And I don't smoke often enough to where it becomes a financial restriction for me. Right. So, it's a pretty good experience. Enjoying it very much. Just as much, I'd say, as I am enjoying this night of run, conversation, and fun. So, let's move on to a couple pretty important news stories. First time we've said that in a while. And uh, why don't you hit the road with uh, kicking this off? Yeah. We, uh, we actually have three stories tonight. Can you believe it? I know. <laughs> uh, not sure that any of the three are actually positive, but there are three stories nonetheless. Um, first up, we have something happening that has been happening at a state level for quite some time. and Well, part, portions of it, and is now moving into talk of the passing at, at a federal level, and what I'm getting at is there's a bill that's been proposed. It's actually not yet on the floor. It's been ginned up. It's written and support is being raised for it. But before it actually gets proposed, there will be some minimum threshold of, uh, of committee the, uh, support. Yeah. The committee work, the, the sponsors, the original sponsors feeling like they have enough support that it has legs to go somewhere before they actually introduce it as a bill and get all the numerology assigned and that kind of thing. But, but this bill does a number of things. Um, <clears throat> one, it will raise the minimum purchasing age for tobacco to 21 at a federal level. And we've been talking about this for a couple of years. The states, just as we predicted and should have been obvious long ago, the states have been just dominoing. I mean, this this has started happening at a local community and city level, and now it's gone up to states. There's quite a number of states that have already raised the age to 21 uh, rather than the 18 or 19 that it was at for decades. Um, so th- this that portion of the bill is very likely to happen at some point, either in this bill or somewhere, you know, tagged onto something else. Um, I don't, I think it's, that's essentially a foregone thing. That's going to happen. Um, but something else that's been kicked around for years, but has managed to stay off the, the radar legislatively to a point that it would actually have those legs and, and become something is a ban on online cigar sales. Now, probably 10 years ago, I don't know. It's been quite a number of years. Well, actually before that, even cigarette sales were forbidden online. Uh, nasal snuff, which for a time was the fastest growing tobacco segment in the U S because people that wanted to quit smoking cigarettes or couldn't smoke in all the places they wanted to started using nasal snuff, which is something that had been out of favor for you know, ages, but that was something they could you know, put out a little on a finger or the back of a knuckle and get a little snort and, and have a nicotine hit as if they'd had a cigarette and go about their business and make no smoke and make no waves. But 10 years or so ago, that was forbidden uh, from sales online. But the new one is trying to close loopholes on a few other things, and, and that's going to include cigars, should this come to be. And the reason that matters is half-ish, roughly half all the cigar sales in the U.S. are conducted online now, and this would prohibit 
any non-face-to-face transactions to purchase cigars. So you got to think all of the, the big uh, online e-tailers and, and catalog orders, not a lot of printed catalogs anymore, but traditional catalog ordering companies like JR Cigars or whatever that have converted to, to online businesses would would be would go away. It would just be forbidden from that point Oof. on should this pass. Yeah, I mean, that's in terms of the overall American economy, that's not really you need not a blip on the radar. But in terms, if you're looking at just the cigar industry, that is pretty freaking huge uh, to just instantly knock away half the cigar sales in the country. It would drive people either away from cigars altogether or into local B&Ms, which have been pretty much <laughs> decimated. There's just not as many of them as there used to be. I, I know a lot of folks that live in rural areas that are forever away from a shop. It seems like Officer Paul out there in New Mexico said it was like a two and a half hour drive to the closest cigar shop for him. So all of his buying is done online. And I think there's a, a good portion of the, the industry that relies on that, that don't have, that no longer have a physical store location to go and buy cigars. So it would be a big hit to retailers and customers, as well as the, the manufacturers, they're not. If 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 this impacts the industry to where people just say, "Okay, well, I can't buy cigars anymore," that's a that's a pretty big gamble, a pretty big chunk of the industry that could just vaporize. It is a. I, I think this has the potential to have a larger impact on the cigar industry than everything that's happening with the food and drug administration right now. Yeah, certainly the most stringent or the biggest change that has been put out there and talked about openly in, in years. I can't think of any of the, you know, the other FDA things. Yeah, they're bad. They're not, they're not good for the industry. They are, they will be very difficult for the industry, but it can be overcome with, some investment that will undoubtedly be passed along to the consumer. You're going to have to pay more for your cigars if they're having to invest thousands of dollars of, uh, of lab work or whatever in every Vitola, all these kind of things we've talked about for the past few years. But to just knock the legs out from under half the, the market, that that's a much bigger impact than anything else we've talked about. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I've shared my opinion in the past uh, regarding I don't want to say I'm resigned to the fate of substantial equivalency being what the future of the cigar industry would require or would necessitate, but I'm not as afraid of it as I think the industry is as a whole. Uh, I think more than anything else, what I want, bless you, uh, is I want to know what the new norm is going to be. And that's what my biggest issue with the Food and Drug Administration deeming documents is, is we have these guidelines, we have no procedure, we have no true timeline, which we will discuss later on, um, and, and we have no real idea of what the industry is going to look like on the other side. The fact of the matter is, is we don't know what it is, but 
it's not cutting it in half. It's just making it different. And I think we as humans, pardon me, have a, a natural built-in fear of change and of the unknown. And that we have to be willing to admit is what part of this is. We can still have a thriving, successful, enjoyable industry in 10 years post-FDA regulations. If we just cut the industry in half and eliminate the buyer, like Officer Paul, like uh, uh, Ian up in Montana, you know, a, a member long member of the forum we haven't seen much recently that has an impact you know not only are you removing half of the sales you're removing a segment of the potential market that is that's not just something that i'm afraid or we are afraid of change about that is something that is finite and it is not finite that is something that is definitive and you can't come back from that we can evolve around the FDA. We can't evolve around half of the sales immediately stopping. Um, right. Period. Uh, you could certainly make a case that some of those online sales will become in-store sales. I get that. But that's not a... The industry has evolved away from that. And to hope that it evolves back to that is just not how consumers truly function. Uh, I think you will see so much more just going away and the casual smoker stops smoking because he can't acquire the cigars and doesn't have a cigar store to go into or doesn't feel comfortable going into a cigar store. This next generation of people, just the generation just younger than me, the millennial, they're <laughs> uh, so much of their consumption tendencies are are centered around a lack of social interaction. And now you're completely eliminating their opportunity to acquire the product in the manner of acquisition that they're most comfortable. It just sounds to me like they will move on. And instead of premium cigars, it might be premium small batch whiskeys or microbrews or I don't know, uh, something else. It just, yeah, a cigar because, isn't a necessity. It's not a drug delivery device. It's yeah. something we choose to do for fun. People will find something else for fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, even the things you mentioned, the alcohol sales or drift to, to that industry, there's a lot of restrictions about shipping alcohol. And it depends on the state you're in. Some prohibit it outright. But there's a store on every corner that sells those products. There's not a cigar store on every corner anymore. The vast majority of places you fill your car up with gasoline, you can go buy a six pack of something, mm -hmm. you know? So that's a, it's a scary thought. Yeah. And, and should this come to pass uh, just as a footnote, the, the online sales ban would not occur until two years after it's enacted. So totally understand. it would not be an instant change, but it would be a significant change. Uh, what else? This bill has several other things. There's some um, user fees that would increase pretty radically, like 15% actually as, as a whole for the industry. But that's an, uh, again, that's surmountable. That's something that, yeah, it's going to drive the price up. 
but it's not going to eliminate the market. It's not going to knock half the market out. It's just going to make a cigar a little more expensive. Yeah. Um, uh, but it does also, or would also include uh, another ban, an outright ban on flavored tobacco products, which would be would come to pass one year after the bill uh, is enacted, should it become so. Uh, and so that would mean essentially all flavors, <laughs> including menthol, which has been hotly debated for several years now. Uh, anything, it, it almost sounds a lot like the old. Uh, historical tobacco purity laws in England mm. uh, because that for for centuries the tobacco in England had these types of laws that governed what could be added to them um, and so a lot of there, there are some defining things that showed up in English pipe tobacco M much of it is flavored by the types of curing that is done in Greece and Syria and Turkey and, and some of the Balt uh, Balkan nations, they smoke or burn particular types of wood underneath to create different flavors. But but the English also added things to tobacco, like anisette, which was a horrible idea as far as I'm concerned, but somebody <laughs> likes it because they sell tons of the stuff. But uh, I wanted anisette. I would just sit and eat licorice, which is the most disgusting candy ever made. But, Amen. Yeah. Or Tonkin beans, or, or uh, what's that other bean that, that they harvest from civet dung? The uh, uh, I don't know. One, one of the what ends up in the coffee? I can't recall the, what that bean's called, but um, a number of oddball things showed up because those had become allowable. But typically, traditionally, English pipe tobaccos only got their flavors from the the curing. They did not add flavors uh, under the old school tobacco purity laws. And that's basically what this would mean. It, it would do away with flavored cigars. It would do away with menthol cigarettes. It, there, you could, it would not allow for flavoring to be added, uh, uh, any, anything beyond the natural tobacco flavor being added to the product or its paper casing in this, in the case of cigarettes or uh, the machine-made cigars, well, the what do you call the reconstituted tobacco sheet wrapped cigars? You can't add flavor to that. You can't add it to the filter. Um, <clears throat> no tobacco products. You couldn't. You can't add flavors to it. Should that happen? So, I'm certain Drew Estate has an eye on this. <laughs> I'm yeah. see with that. <clears throat> yeah, I would. Uh, I would imagine they do, but. Yeah. Uh, you know who doesn't? What's that? Who's that? Imperial Tobacco. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Sayonara, suckers. Yeah, what, Greg? Greg. I just called you Greg. What, yep, Greg? and I just called you a-hole. <laughs> well, that's nothing new. I don't think I've ever <laughs> called you Greg before. Uh, I believe you're correct <laughs> on both fronts. <laughs> What Craig is alluding to, this this story came through a number of outlets, but uh, first I saw of it was just through a Bloomberg feed, and it's actually a Bloomberg article, that Imperial is selling off their cigar business. And for those who don't know, that is a pretty big story because you may not know the name Imperial, but you know a lot of the brands that are part of that cigar branch. Yes, you do. You know a lot of them. Um 
they own what half stake in the the entire Cuban market, pretty much the Cuban industry, halfish. That is correct. Uh, what else they got? Uh, the um, I always get this mixed up and want to call the wrong the the wrong. Um, who are all their subsidiaries? Oh, like the the non Cuban versions yeah. of the cigars. I mean, everything you see coming through the Casa de Monte Cristo, JR cigars lines, all that stuff is all all of it up for sale. Uh, well, you, I, I mean, just the Monte Cristo blend, mm-hmm. the Upman blend. These are are massive names that Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Th- these are massive names that they hold the trademarks for and they are legally uh the ones managing those <clears throat> those trademarks in the united states and uh they are getting out of the market and selling these products and it's it's a massive massive uh potential change to these brands that have been around i mean monte cristo one of the most well-known cigars in the world has been around since 1935 and uh, it might not be sold in in the United States if it isn't purchased. What's what's going on with that? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, our our appeal to you, the listener, is if you have a spare two and a half billion or so laying around, yeah, we we can go in on you with this. You know, I think that Kip, we talked about this. Um, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but. Uh, I am more than happy to throw thirty dollars in today. <laughs> thirty sounds fair. I mean, I'm I'm all in on that. You want to go partners? I'll take a percent with my thirty bucks, and we'll be good. Yeah. Well, now to get a little bit further into this, all joking aside, with the possibility of you know us divvying up the two and a half billion dollar price tag. Uh huh. I've kind of been trying to ponder exactly what the motivation is. I don't think it's just, oh, we're getting out of tobacco because they're keeping the very profitable cigar business. Um, or I'm sorry, cigarette business. They make literally billions of cigars or cigarettes per year. And they're, and they're keeping that. Um, there's some speculation that it's to raise capital to, further invest in their e-cigarette stuff. They own the blue brand of e-cigarettes. And that's kind of a thing that seems to be maybe headed into a more profitable area, even if the U.S. is going to make it more difficult and expensive because uh, that has just exploded in the past five years. So I don't know. I mean, it, they said that it was to pay down debt and boost investment. I guess that's true. But I can't imagine they're just outright losing money on on the cigars. I just, I just can't fathom that would be the case. They have to be making money. It's just maybe they think they can make more money elsewhere and could use that capital to, to invest. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, there's there's a myriad of different things that we can come up with to try to speculate about this but the fact of the matter is is it's probably easier for them to make money with that capital elsewhere yeah period so if you're going to make an investment 
you or I, we're going to save for retirement. Are we going to invest tomorrow everything in bonds or are we going to invest tomorrow everything in stocks? We're both decades away from retirement. You could invest it in bonds and, you know, make some money and be a little safe, but you're not going to make as much as if you put it in stocks. Well, when you have shareholders that you need to report back to, are you going to say, I've got this great idea. It's going to make us 75% less money than if we did something else with your funds. What do you think? If you just take it at the simplest level, that makes some damn sense that they're going to want to go elsewhere, right? Yeah, it does to me anyway. So it's a little unfortunate, a little... Not a little unfortunate. Incredibly unfortunate. I don't smoke a lot of Imperial products, but it's it's shocking from the American perspective that this large of a change is potentially going to take place. And it's almost mind-numbing from a Cuban perspective because, quite frankly, the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of communism in, in as a major governmental geopolitical figure uh, or position in the late 80s, early 90s had almost almost the ability to make the country of Cuba crumble. And I truly believe that you could make a case that the only thing that brought the Cuban cigar industry back into being alive and thriving was the acquisition of half of a Bonos SA by Imperial Tobacco or Altidus SA uh, in 1994. When that occurred, the Cuban cigar market started emerging. It started the, the largest transition of Cuban cigar blends since <laughs> Since black tobacco was abandoned and Corojo tobacco was uh, started being used in the 1930s and 40s was when Altidus took uh, a controlling share of the Cuban cigar market in 1994 and changed 80% of all the Cuban cigars to a completely different blend in 1995, a year, year and a half after they acquired uh, a, a large share of that company. And it saved the industry. It did. It saved that cigar industry. And now they're getting out. Yeah. What is going to happen in Cuba? I don't know. I mean, that's that half the Cubans. It's, it's Altadas and JR Cigars. And the, the Casa de Monte Cristo, the retail chain, and as well as JR Cigars retail. I mean, all that is on the, on the, the auction block. It's uh, it, it's real damn interesting to me, I tell you. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to watch this with a big old bucket of popcorn and uh, a sense of, yeah, I'm interested in whatever happens. It doesn't need to be anything, uh, doesn't need to be anything special or crazy. I just kind of want to see it. I don't have any control, so I'm just going to be a fly on the wall and looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I don't know, looking forward to it, but... Anxious to see what happens anyway. Yeah, that's true. I uh, <laughs> I don't really want it to change. There could be some fun things that come out of it in Cuba, but I don't know. Yeah, I see. They also own British American Tobacco, which is historically a major player in pipe tobacco, but 
they mostly divested themselves of the pipe tobacco a couple of years ago already. I don't know how much market share they still have there. I uh, I don't know, man. It's uh, if you're willing to detach yourself from it and say, I have no control over what's going to happen. So I'm just going to sit back and accept it. Uh, it's a bit of a freeing perspective. It's not so terribly stressful, but yeah, yeah, man. Uh, if you well, jump, if you jump right in, it's scary as hell. Yeah, it is. But uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you have no control over it, why put yourself through worrying about it? Yeah. It, if you if you have the ability to separate yourself, it's a good thing to separate yourself from it. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, we got one more little story here about a uh, court case that transpired over the past week or so, or, or wrapped up over the past week or so. Yes. And I put in the notes that the FDA has lost the one court case we would like them to have won yeah and we actually talked about this when the suit was brought uh, up uh i guess it's been a year or so ago um i'm trying to remember who the group was it was a group of healthcare providers and whatnot that essentially they saw the fda say hey we don't know what we're doing we have this 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 guidance we published with all these FDA regulations that are going to uh, now encompass and cover the cigar industry. But we can't give specific guidance on how the cigar industry can meet this. So we're going to delay certain aspects of the, of, of the regulation for a couple of years. And the major portion of that, that was the delay was the substantial equivalence where, and we've talked about this, a lot uh, where that whatever that date was February of 2007 ish anything in the marketplace before that date would be grandfathered in they don't have to do anything if you can demonstrate that you had your cigar essentially unchanged until now if you had it in the marketplace before that date you're good to go you you are in after that date up until August of 2016, if I'm remembering that date right, and I wouldn't swear to it, but somewhere about there, uh, you could go through a process of substantial equivalence where you essentially demonstrate through some as of yet unknown method that this product is substantially equivalent to an existing product that was in the marketplace before that. Then you can kind of shortcut the, the the bulk of the process of getting a new product approved anything after that latter date would require will at some point require a very different application process to 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 be hashed out before it's introduced into the marketplace well the fda realizing that they had published they were going to do this but didn't yet know how to do it and could not tell the cigar industry how to do it said okay we don't we don't have a firm grasp on this yet. We're going to delay it for a couple of years. We're going to give you two more years because we need to get our ducks in a row and tell you what, what it is you're going to have to do. Well, this group of medical providers and, and health groups, 
I'll call them for lack of a better word, said, you know what? FDA is not acting in good faith to enforce the regulations. They just need to buck up and get it together. And this is what we're doing. You can't just delay it. You're not, uh, you're bowing to industry pressure. You're bowing to lobbying. You're, you're not enforcing the rules that you have on the books. You're violating the intent of Congress and the original declaration that this is what you should do to, to cover these other tobacco products. Well, they have now won that case, at least in the first round, short of an appeal that goes through down the road, which I'm assuming will happen in the near future. The medical uh, providers have won it. Exactly. They, they won FDA law. So essentially what this judge is saying, hey, FDA, you need to go back to the drawing board. You, you can't have this two-year delay. You can't just randomly give two more years to figure this out. You need to figure it out and get it on the books and done and, and, and get this pushed through, which is going to be really difficult. And it should not be a huge surprise to anybody that some portion of our government doesn't have everything worked out, at least any, anybody that has ever dealt with the U.S. government before. And I've used the same example half a dozen times on this show of my past with an environmental site that we had that was contaminated with arsenic. And we cleared three feet of soil. We were pumping groundwater. Um, <laughs> in an instance where dilution was the solution, this groundwater was above the, at that time, the 50 parts per million uh, was the threshold. And we could pump that to a treatment plant where it was sprayed out into spray fields and diluted to a low enough level that was okay. But somewhere in the midst of all this uh, planning and installation and, and spending of money, millions of dollars to clean this side up, the the rule changed. Okay, the, the, the threshold is no longer 50 parts per million, it's 10. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to be pumping for 100 years to get this out because the background levels of arsenic in this area are higher than 10 parts per million <laughs> because of two centuries of agricultural use. We're, we will never meet that but nonetheless explain to us how we do it because at that point in time there were no labs that could test and tell you if something is below 10 parts per million it, the, the methodology didn't exist to even test to the level that that the new standard required and they essentially just said that's not really our problem <laughs> uh excuse me yeah so okay so we're just going to keep doing what we're doing until somebody at some point when, and it did eventually happen that, that some methodology was developed and equipment caught up to where it could be tested. But for a long period of time, we had a standard we had to meet that was, it was not, there was no way to meet it. There was no way to prove we had met it. So we just kept doing what we're doing. And so this kind of thing is not new. It's not even rare. It, it seems to be far too common that, we get worked up and, and we publish a, a new regulation and there's not really an existing way to, to, to meet it or even measure if you can meet it. And, and that's where we are with the FDA. We have a, a, a publication, a regulation that's been published and we don't really know how we're going to get there. And the FDA wanted to give a delay and now they've lost a court case and have been told they can't give that delay. So, that's where we are now. I, I imagine there will be appeals 
begin flying in the days to come and move this up the system. But I don't know. I don't know where they go from here. You know, the pragmatist in me says uh, necessity is the mother of invention, but I also have seen enough situations vaguely similar to this where it's not going to be an invention that is inherently appropriate. It's just going to be a resolution to meet what this mandate is, not for the ultimate longevity and healthfulness of uh, attempting to resolve this situation. And that's what bothers me. In my example, it was just a matter of refining technology and equipment until we were able to to meet that. In this case, the the FDA can't even say, uh, you know, what 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 it is that we're going to test, what it is that we're going to have to do to to demonstrate that we meet these requirements, because they're not clear what the requirements are even yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I uh, I just kind of shake my head at this. I, I don't really know how to handle it, and nobody does. Uh, but I mean, that's it's just it's just frustrating. Mm-hmm. And we're we're a broken record. I, I mean, how often do we do we talk about this? You know, it's it's a fact that we've discussed a dozen times if we've discussed once that there is this requirement that nobody knows how we're going to handle. Yeah. I mean, and this is not even, it's not even, like I said, a matter of waiting for technology to catch up. It's waiting for the FDA to say what even the goal is, let alone the process to attain the goal. We don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just moving the, what is it? The measuring stick. Mm -hmm. You haven't decided whether it's going to be a measuring or a yardstick or a meter stick. And then you're moving it. Yeah. So. Oh well, that was a pretty bad analogy, but I'm I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> well, it's like you're measuring distance with a teaspoon. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, but the uh, "beam me up, Scotty" uh, quote from Gandalf is uh, running through my head. <laughs> Have you seen that? Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a picture of Patrick Stewart, and it says, "Use the force, Harry." <laughs> Uh, oh well all right well i know that i have not uh had anything to share on the what else you've been smoking because of this cold and uh uh by the way i don't know if my voice sounds more nasally to you or congested to you but i have stopped smoking this nicaragua because i have gotten to the point where i cannot taste it any longer hmm but uh, that has been an issue for me recently. Hopefully you have some pipe tobacco at least to uh, talk about with with uh, what you've been smoking. I do. I had a little bit of show and tell, but I seem to have lost video for the moment. Uh, not sure what's going on. I, I, my camera is on. I don't know why it's no longer showing, but that's that's where we are. I had a couple of, actually a couple of pipe tobaccos, no new cigars. I've only had one other cigar since our last show. I've been pretty well focused on pipe tobacco. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm learning some things about myself. 
apparently in 2010, I decided I wanted to go through the entire offering, the entire portfolio of Brebbia pipe tobacco. And uh, I say that because I have single tins of quite a number of their blends that, that I have been bringing down and having people bring to me. And so I opened up a tin of classic English mix number 70 uh, recently. <clears throat> the date on that is March of 2010. So that, about that time, I bought singles of these tins. I had at that point, a well-established um, seller of pipe tobacco. I didn't really need to buy in mass anymore. I was just kind of playing the field. And if I liked something, I would put a few more aside. And what I did was buy all these singles of these Brebbia tins and never opened any of them. So I didn't know if I liked them and I never bought any more. So here's to hoping I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, this the uh, tin description of this is that it's a classical English mixture of various spicy tobaccos such as Syrian Latakia and Louisiana Perique, cross-cut, fully aromatic, cool-burning, high-class quality tobacco for the demanding pipe smoker. Eh, I'll buy most of that. Uh, <coughs> the Syrian Latakia, maybe they got their hands on some, but I know about that time it was still a pretty rare commodity. Um... Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not saying they're lying by any stretch, but it was hard to come by at that time. I'll just say that. But maybe it's thing. It doesn't have. It doesn't have the uh, really uh, fragrant, smoky kind of characteristic that I remember from Syrian Latakia, but maybe it's there in some small proportion. Uh, it also mentions Perique, uh, which is another long topic we can talk about or what qualifies as Perique these days. <laughs> but, but that actually seems to have taken over the aroma of this blend in the last eight years. I, I don't know what it was like fresh because, like I said, I bought one tin and put it aside. Hmm. Um, but the most interesting thing about this blend, it's a pretty straightforward English style blend. Just like it says, it's a classic English blend. There's nothing, um, <clears throat> when I say, I also call it middle of the road. It is middle of the road, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in, it is, it is a classic English blend. It, it's not fancy. It's not wildly off course with some peculiar flavor. It's just, it is the MyMix 965 for Brebbia. It's, it's just, traditional English style pipe tobacco with the exception of the fact that <clears throat> the Perique, if it, if it was different, fresh, I don't know. But at this point, after eight years, the Perique is very, very pungent and very bold in this blend uh, relative to Perique's normal presence. And what I mean by that is Perique is typically a condimental tobacco. It's not the focus of a blend. Uh, and it's not the focus of this blend in, in the sense that it's one-dimensional or something. But it, it has a bolder presence than I normally associate with English pipe tobacco. Because Perique typically shows up in a, a Virginia and Perique blend with, with less in terms of the oriental varietals and, and Latakia and whatnot. Uh, the Perique is very strong when you first open this tin. 
but like many things that fades quickly after it's been open for a little bit. But the most interesting thing about this tobacco is that one little line on the tin description that says cross cut. Uh, that is a type of cut. Many pipe tobaccos that most folks know are, are come in a ribbon cut, which is long stringy ribbons of tobacco or even flakes. They're, they're also pretty common where the tobacco has been pressed into cakes and then sliced into flakes, which are then rubbed out to whatever consistency you want and smoked. This cross cut in this blend, the pieces are ginormous. I don't know that I've ever encountered a tobacco that is so coarsely cut. Um, I mean, it, the pieces are huge. I, I posted a picture of it in the forum and said I felt like I should run it through a paper shredder before I try to put it in a pipe. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's not in flakes. It's all loose tobacco, but it, the pieces are huge, which kind of makes it definitely makes it burn slower kind of makes it a little tougher uh, to keep lit especially as you start getting toward the bottom of the bowl when there's ash on top and maybe some moisture starting to condense in the bottom of the bowl uh, but it's not not too terrible uh, it burns okay it's not something that i would give the hardiest recommendation and say oh you just have to try this blend mm. uh, there's nothing wrong with it it's just not the kind of thing that's going to make you sit up and take notice and say, that's my holy grail. That's my desert island blend. I got to have it. I got to stockpile it. So I'm not disappointed that I bought it, but I'm also not disappointed that I only bought one ten of it. I'm not going to be sad to see <laughs> it's gone. So it, it is what it is. My guess is that that is the exact tobacco that would make me go, it's not bad. But I know that tin over there, I think is good. I mm -hmm. don't really want to just go through the action of smoking this because I have it when that's over there. I I just I I almost positive that that's how I would feel about that. Uh, it's it's funny that uh, I think it's just our different personalities. I can see, I can envision myself smoking that and reviewing it just as you have and saying almost exactly the same thing, except, but I'll probably never pack another bowl of this in my life. Yeah. Um, I will finish the tin, but uh, and it doesn't bother me that there's not another one behind it. Mm. I completely understand. Now, the other one, and... Again, as I've said many times, I am a Greg Pease fanboy. I love his tobaccos. Uh, what? In, in particular, anything he makes that he puts the word English or Balkan on, I'm a freaking fan. I, I, I devour it. And so I have a 10. This is a recent 10. It's just from 2018. It's not. There's no age on it. It's less than a year. Um, but it's Charing Cross. And I put in the notes, how do you say that again? Because I'm not sure. This is a name of a location in England. I don't know if it's Charing, Sharing, Charing. It looks like Charing, but it's got one R. I don't know how you say the name of this place, but I've been smoking the stuff for a decade or more. Um, so it seems like I probably should learn that, but I haven't. <laughs> Normally, I find myself questioning how to pronounce Spanish words. Now I have English <laughs> words in front of me and don't know what to do with it. But, uh, the tin description on this is that it's a traditional Balkan style blend of fine Virginia leaf, richly seasoned with smoky Cyprian from Cyprus, Latakia, which is the more common uh, 
breed of, I don't want to say breed because it's not a different plant, more common type of Latakia. And spiced with exquisite and exotic tobaccos of the Orient. So there's some other Orientals mixed in as well. This is something I would still call a middle-of-the-road English. But I prefer this very strongly to this other blend I've been talking about. Hmm. For some of the same reasons, but this one is just more appealing to me. It doesn't. It, it, it's it's cut much better for me anyway. It's a, it is a more finely cut ribbon. It's actually very fine. I'm looking down in the tin right now. It has a stronger uh, hardwood fire kind of aroma to it. Um, it, it. It actually takes me back to the very early days of me smoking traditional English pipe tobaccos. <clears throat> and Nightcap and My Mix 965 are the two that I really, really loved early on. Those two were from Dunhill. And I remember... <clears throat> I don't remember the year, but I remember the moment I opened the first 10 of my mixture 965 from Dunhill. And I thought, oh, man, uh, is there something wrong with that? That doesn't smell like pipe tobacco because I had been smoking other things. I had not been smoking English pipe tobaccos. I don't know if there's something wrong with it, but I really liked that. And I smoked it. And I more than liked it. I loved it. And this takes me back to those those early days. It's just very straightforward English blend, but it's pleasing. It's it's smoky. It's not harsh. It's not overpowering. It's not. It does not have a lot of strength in terms of, of the nicotine content. Um, it's just a really pleasant tobacco. I really like it. Uh, I like it a lot. A metric buttload, even. <laughs> what what is it called again? Charing Cross. Charing Cross. Not, not charring cross. It only has one R in it, so I think it's charring. You're not. You're not getting that I'm poking fun of you. Never mind. Uh, well, I'm so accustomed to that it doesn't even register on the radar anymore. Uh, it, you probably just—it's like water off a duck's back. You don't even care. <laughs> I'll, I'll go through the motions. Fine. You want to give me a hard time? I'll play along. <laughs> yeah, I'll play dumb, even if I'm not playing. <laughs> Well, you got any final thoughts on that uh, very unique, very uh, uh, aged Oliva you got over there? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just messing with you. Uh, I was looking back at what I had typed in before the show even started that the uh, cold draw was more raisiny than normal. The aroma yep. was very barnyard-like. Um, when I initially lit it, it did not in any way tell me that this cigar was over 10 years old. It, it had not lost a step in terms of its its boldness. It was very much like I remembered in that sense. It, it had not faded. And, you know, when a cigar goes over the hill, it kind of gets so milk toast, so mild that there's just not a lot there. It's lost so much. Absolutely. And, this one was there was not even a hint of that. It was it was very bold and flavorful. It was actually kind of aggressive through the nose with the first few uh, retro hails. Um, all the same things, uh, the typical woodsy kind of core, almost a charcoal flavor at times, which sounds horrible, but actually is quite pleasant for me. Um, it remained very moderately aggressive 
uh, through the nose, but that I, I kind of got dulled to that throughout the cigar. Uh, I'm down to the last inch and a half or so now, and still very good. No harshness. It, it's 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 just a good cigar for me. I know you're not the biggest fan, but I like them. I still like it. I, I think it had. If you are a fan of the of these when they came out, you will still be a fan today. I don't think they've lost much at all. And now they haven't they haven't mellowed into this uh, nuanced. Uh, lovely little delicate flower of a cigar but if you liked them fresh you definitely still like them now they're still very much the same as they were they haven't they haven't lost a step how much of a refresh my memory how much of a change in blend uh, or profile is probably appropriate uh was there between the first four years of that release 2007 to 2010 they were markedly different, weren't they? Uh, there was one year in particular. I don't remember which year it was. Um, and it, the thing, the reason I remember is because it did not seem to be consistent with what they published as the changes in the blend, mm. which was basically just a change in the wrapper leaf because all they would say about the blend was Nicaraguan binder and filler. So mm. I don't, you know, maybe they were tinkering with the blend internally. I don't know. Um, but it wasn't like, okay, this year, the wrapper changed. That's what they would say, but there was no change for me personally in how they smoked, but there was uh, that oddball year. It seems like 2011 was the one that stood out for me. That was the year that I just absolutely adored even more than the others. Uh, it was a more sedate kind of blend. It was not as aggressive as what I just described in the 2008. It was not as brash or, or harmful feeling to the nose even. It, it was much more uh, approachable uh, in 2011. Which is weird because, you know, as far as the information they released, there was very little change in the cigar. But yeah. 20, 2011 to me was very different than the others. Yeah, the, the old sniff test tells you something that a uh, piece of paper isn't going to. Right. Or may not. Very cool. It uh, it's been nice to spend an evening getting another show in the books here. Yeah, man, I've enjoyed it. I, I, and the last half of the show, I didn't even have to look at your mug. <laughs> yeah, your milk stained goatee. Yeah, got a face made for radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, all all, uh, all honesty, I. Uh, Every time we sit down to record, hours tick by, and I love the hell out of it. This has been a blast, and uh, thanks for uh, for your effort and getting us back together. Oh, same here, man. Yatusabi. Say. <laughs> we ready, ready to wrap this joker up? Do it. All right. Well, everybody, we certainly appreciate you, as always, for tuning in. Uh not that there was a heavy chat room presence tonight because we did not even advertise that we were recording, but uh, I did see somebody stop by earlier, Frank, I think. But uh, anyway, we uh, love to have you back for episode 195 next time around where we will be smoking something as of yet undetermined, but most likely an unbanded cigar. Um, so we'd love to have you back for that. And in the meantime, if you want to catch us, you can get us by email 
to Craig at halfashed.com or Kip at halfashed.com or through all the typical social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or as always, our own little corner of the vast interwebs at halfashed.com where we have our own little forum where we hang out and bear the brunt of people making fun of us and whatnot. But, uh, but that's okay. We dig it. And we'd love to have you join us. Amen to that. And uh, as so often happens here on the podcast, we uh, close out with a little bit of a, uh, a a dedication and just kind of focusing in on somebody who's made an impact on us. And so tonight is no different. Tonight goes out to Mr. Stephen Cohen, uh, without whom I would uh, never know the joy that can be certain cigars, most notably the Davidoff Diadema. Mr. Cohen, I miss you, brother. Show goes out to you. And everybody else who's tuned in tonight and whoever listens to us on the podcast uh, sometime in the future, I say to you in the wise words of our mentor, Mr. Dale Roush, good night, everybody, and thanks for listening. <laughs>